Well, dear friends, let's look at Luke 9. We'll be in verses 51 through 62. And we see within this passage the, the cost of discipleship. Throughout this passage, the, the costliness of discipleship, the costliness of turning to Jesus and following Jesus and walking in obedience to the commands that Jesus gives. And we see this, um, the, the cost of discipleship is a hindrance in the sanctification of the worldly. The, the cost of discipleship is a hindrance in the sanctification of the worldly. When we speak of sanctification um, and we speak of the, the cost of discipleship being a, a hindrance, the first thought that many of, you, many of you will have is that of progressive sanctification, that, that work of the Spirit and the life of the Christian to sanctify them and to continue to change them. And that certainly is a reality, the, the cost of discipleship, the difficulties of discipleship. That's something that the Lord will continue to work in the lives of His people and, and, and sanctify them. There's going to be a continual repentance of sin. There's going to be a continual changing in the life spiritually of the Christian. The Spirit will be working in the life of the Christian with the Word and in the church to conform that Christian to the image, of, to, to conform that Christian to Christ Jesus and the likeness of Christ Jesus to, to change you. But I'm talking here specifically about immediate sanctification. The cost of discipleship, that, that difficulty that is there, that, that, that which the person must let go of to cling to the cross, that can be difficult for one who is worldly, for it is difficult to hold on to the world and cling to the cross. J.C. Ryle says this. J.C. Ryle says this, nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession or to talk fluently of his experience. It may be painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength, and that there may be a great quality, quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little real grace, let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end, but let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross on the way. And this carrying the cross is something that Jesus has been talking about. This cost of discipleship is something that Jesus has been speaking of. You have people who are coming to Jesus and saying, I want to follow you. And Jesus is one who can see into their hearts, can understand their motives. And He's not immediately saying, okay, well, ask me into your heart. Come forward. Who would come forward right now and ask me into their heart? But rather, He is confronting them with the idols that are there within their hearts. And this is an issue for the Christian as well. We will see this reality that there is a cost here for the one who would come to Christ, the one who would believe upon Christ. That there is a laying down of worldly idols that is necessary, a, a laying down of, of self-righteousness. All the religions that would cling to their idolatry and then seek to cling to Jesus as well, but that Jesus they claim they cling to is not the true Jesus. 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He will share his glory with no one. And he's speaking here very clearly on this cost of discipleship. It's a cost of the Christian as well. There is a way in which you're going to see as you grow, as you are sanctified. You can even say it this way. You, you can see the, the, the many problems that you have, and as the Lord begins to grow you and sanctify you and change you, you then begin to notice other problems you didn't notice that you had before. Sometimes that can be frustrating for the Christian. Like, when is this going to end? I, I, I'm hearing the Word of God preached. I'm hearing the law of God proclaimed, and I'm merely seeing other areas that I'm violating that I didn't even recognize before, well, the Lord gave you eyes to see that. You should be grateful for that. The Lord condescended and, and shared His truth with you in this way. You should be grateful for that. This is progressive sanctification. It is a, a good thing. And the proclamation of the law of God is only difficult for those that are self-righteous. It's only difficult for those that believe they are perfectly keeping it on their own or believe that they have some status on their own that they're attaining through their obedience. See, but the Christian that is trusting in Christ Jesus, the Christian that has said, there is nothing that I'm bringing to my salvation, there is nothing that I'm bringing to the cross except for the sin that made it necessary. Such a Christian hearing the law of God, such a Christian hearing the ways in which they're falling short to God's law, it merely reminds them once again of the grace that they have received. So although there is a cost for the Christian in discipleship, he is letting go. He is releasing that which he knows he cannot keep. He is letting go of that which is not eternal but rather is temporal and clinging to that which no one can take away. I want to look at this in three specific areas, and I think it has relevance here to the unbelievers in this text or those that are maybe on the edge. We don't see where all of these people end up. The Samaritans, it seems we see where they end up, but some of the others, we don't see what decision the people make or, or where they end up going ultimately. But I think this has relevance. It has application there, as we can see, for one who needs to come to Christ and, 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 and just release worldly idols. But it also is applicable to the Christian. I think each and every one of these areas is an area that you will deal with as Christians. Some of you will deal with it in greater ways than others. Some Christians in the world right now deal with these, and it is more costly to them to live as a Christian than it is for us here. The reality is, for most Christians throughout history, it has been much more costly for them than it has been for us in our particular cultural context. So we're going to look at this in three areas, cultural, earthly, and social. See, the cultural cost of discipleship, the cultural cost, the, the, the reality that there, these cultures that exist in the world, they have varying levels of truth within them. And there can be varying levels of cost that is required for one who claims the name of Jesus, one who comes to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. For some, it may be a little discomfort. It may be a small amount of mockery. For others, they may lose their lives. They may lose their household. They may lose their families, their possessions, their jobs. These are realities for Christians all around the world. And these have been realities for Christians throughout history. 
Secondly, we see the earthly cost of discipleship. When I say earthly here, I'm talking about things that, that, that are temporal, uh, comforts, possessions, wealth, these, these realities that are there, that there is an earthly cost to discipleship. You need to even view your possessions differently as a Christian, and a love of money, a love of possession, a love of certain comforts can be a hindrance to people coming to Jesus. Thirdly, there's a social cost to discipleship, and some of that may, may fall under this cultural cost as well, but we're going to deal with the social cost more specifically and how it, how it deals with us in our families, immediate family, extended family, and maybe networks within our culture. There can be a social cost in discipleship. There's a, a consequence to living as a Christian. The reality is Living as a Christian should be something that is distinct. Your life as a Christian should not be merely living in a way that merely supports what you would have done anyway if you weren't a Christian, if you never claimed the name of Jesus. So the reality of this cost is there. I think it's ubiquitous. It's in all places everywhere, and in particular families, in particular people, and in particular cultures. There may be some distinctions in each of these areas, but I believe it's relevant to all people everywhere. Let's look at this first part here, the cultural cost of discipleship. We see that here in these, the, these first nine verses. Let's begin in verse 51 and go through verse 62. It says, when the days drew near for him, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent the messengers ahead of him and went and entered to the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. I'm sorry, I was only going through 56. But we see here the cultural cost of discipleship. Jesus was here in Samaria. This is in the, the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And we have a cultural cost here for the Samaritans to follow Jesus. The Samaritans despised Jesus. They despised the ministry of Jesus for one reason in particular— he was heading to Jerusalem. The Samaritans despised Jerusalem. The Samaritans despised the, the Jews. Jesus is here. He has clothed himself in flesh. He has dwelt amongst the people. He is walking through this country of Samaria, and they are despising him because of where he is going. They are refusing to give him accommodations. They're refusing to be hospitable to him. He is one who is being hospitable to his creation. He is one who is tabernacling amongst the people. Remember, that is the word that John uses in John chapter 1 and verse 19. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That is a tabernacle word that is there. That is the same word in the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament that is used for the tabernacle in the Old Testament, but in the Greek. And so, John is specifically using that word. And Jesus is one who is showing hospitable, hospitableness to people. He is, he is dwelling amongst them. He is tabernacling with them. 
And they are despising him. They are despising him because he is not coming in the way that they would have desired him to come. They would have liked for him to come forward and to celebrate the Samaritans and despise the Jews. They would like for him to have come and to supported their false worship. They, they had a worship that they followed that was not consistent with the ceremonial law. They worshiped on a temple on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. But Jesus was the Passover lamb. Jesus was the one who was going forward. His mind was upon Jerusalem. His face was toward Jerusalem. He was going forward as that sacrificial lamb, that lamb that was being sacrificed day and night. Lambs were sacrificed there on the altar, pointing to the need, the need of Christ Jesus, that reminder of the sin of the people. And the lamb, the perfect lamb that would be sacrificed in the morning, and the lamb would be sacrificed in the evening, but the fire continued to burn and to burn and to burn. And it was a reminder, which is why the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats forgives no sins. And they weren't seeing this. They weren't seeing what was communicated there in the ceremonial law. They were seeking to go and establish their own religion, and they desired God to support, God to buttress their idolatry. They desired God to conform to their religion. That's not how it works. That's not how God's truth works. That's not how God's Word works. God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is immutable. His Word is the same. His Word does not go away. His Word does not change. We are the ones that need to change. So the Samaritans have the same problem here that all people everywhere have in their false religion. Samaritans had their own little origin story. And the Samaritans are basically the result of the northern kingdom. And they were, they were removed and they were taken out. But some were left there and other pagans were put in that place. And then you had a mixture of the Jews there in the northern kingdom and these pagans that were there. And you ended up with a religion that only followed basically the Pentateuch. And you had this mixture, this uh, syncretism of paganism and Old Testament religion. And they went and established a temple there upon Mount Gerizim. And if you remember, the king in the northern kingdom actually sought to establish his own temple up in the northern kingdom at one point as well. So it's kind of this amalgamation of many sins that have brought it to the place here where you have this group of people that is the Samaritans that are following this religion that has similarities to what's said in the Pentateuch, but it's, it has errors as well, and so it's not legitimate. And they are looking for a Messiah here, one who would conform to their errors, one who would conform to their false religion. And Christ is not doing that. Christ is not conforming. Jesus will take you as you are. Jesus will take you as one who comes to Him, as one who repents of your sin and, and trusts in Him. He, he, he will take you. There's all kinds of sins that you can commit that can be forgiven. But to the one who will not see his sin, to the one who desires God to change on his behalf, God to be different than He is. You're asking God to be what He never could be. You're asking God to do that if God did that, He would no longer actually be God. He could not be God if He were changing. God's Word 
is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It is us that must see the ways in which we fall short. So there was a cost here for any Samaritan that was going to follow Jesus. There was a cultural cost. They had to turn away from the false religion that they were raised in. This origin story that they had, there was, there was a belief amongst the Samaritans, and they still declare it now. They still declare it now that, that Moses had commanded them to go and build this temple on Mount Gerizim. There's no such evidence in the Pentateuch that Moses ever made such a declaration or that they were to do that. And if you understand the origin story of, of, the, of the kingdoms, you'll understand that this is totally inconsistent with with history. And these are also people that were enemies of the Jews. They were terroristic toward the Jews. This isn't just not liking someone like you. The, the VeggieTales stories sometimes give us a wrong impression of what was going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. Many times the Jews would travel around Samaria, but they traveled around Samaria, yes, because they despised the Samaritans, but also because it was dangerous to travel through there. There are times where Jews were traveling through Samaria, and they were ambushed by the Samaritans. There's other times in the Old Testament where, where there, there's the, the previous people had, had sold out the Jews as well. This is something um, that there's, there's a long history that is here, and it's a long history of violence between two groups of people that are very, very near each other. And the reality is there is a cultural cost for discipleship for a great many people. Some of you, when you came to Christ Jesus, you were at odds with how you were raised. Your parents were, were, were proud liberals. Your parents were, were proud in their liberalism and the, the idea of their child turning and, and, and believing in Christ, or, or actually living this stuff out. I mean, it's one thing, certainly we, we go to church for funerals, we, we go to church for weddings, we, we may go here and there, but these, these other days of the week, it doesn't need to affect us. We don't need to get all worked up. We don't need to be zealots. And when you confess Christ to your parents, when you told your parents the, 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 the change that had happened, they began to see these changes. Perhaps they liked some of the changes. They saw the ways that you began to be a little more serious in your school, in your work. Maybe you, you were getting married. They, they, they appreciated those things. And then the rubber began to hit the road. And you were raising your children differently. You were, you were living your life differently, and it became an offense to them. Almost like it's you, them that you're shunning, but it is these idols that they were holding to that you are turning away from. There's a cost there. Thanksgiving dinner is different. Christmas time is different. There's a cost that is there. It's not so serious for many of you like it is for some in other countries where there's a complete disowning of, out of the family or there is a loss of your life or a loss of, of property. Some of you are, were raised as Roman Catholics. And you began to see the false religion in Roman Catholicism. You began to see the ways in which there were idols all around you. You were raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And you would say your Hail Marys, and you would bow down to the various uh, saints that were there and the statues, and would say your prayers. You'd walk through Mass each and every week. Maybe sometimes some of you went multiple times during the week 
believing that your, your, your uh, venial sins were being removed at that time. And then you began to see the emptiness in that religion, the idolatry that was there, the ways in which this was doing nothing to deal with the sin in your heart, the sin in your family. It was not bringing you peace with God. It was bringing you frustration. You were like Martin Luther, wanting peace with God, not knowing what to do. How many prayers should I pray? How many Hail Marys should I give? How many indulgences should I buy? And you found peace in Christ alone. You found peace by grace in through faith, not by works, knowing you cannot boast, knowing there is no such thing as supererogation as it's taught in the Roman Catholic Church, this idea that you can do so many good works, that you attain so much grace for yourself that it covers your sins, and then it's dispensed to other people. Dispensed to other people through the sale of indulgences to support the church, to support the buildings and many other such things. Interesting how that works. You know, but it's like in, in The Princess Bride. You keep using these words, but I don't think they mean what you think they do. That's not what grace is. Grace is not earned, grace is not purchased. You cannot do so many good works to cover your sins and have so much extra that it can go into a treasury of merit to be dispensed to other people. Even if you did do all that was right, which you don't do, you would still be unprofitable servants. You would only be doing that which was required of you. You can't save. If you could do that, Jesus didn't need to come. No, some of you, some even, maybe not none of you here, but some, some come from a, a Muslim background, and you begin to look at some really serious costs at that point, people's lives that are in danger in the 1040 window, people's lives that are in danger as they convert to Christianity, where some of these countries, they will allow Christian churches to exist and to be there. If you will stay in your fences, you will not go outside of there. But the moment someone who is Muslim begins to convert, there is a cost. There, there is a consequence. That's, that's the reality of a cultural cost of following Jesus. And the way it is that we need to operate, the way we need to operate as a church is, is not like, like a government, is not like it was done in the Crusades. I think we see a little bit of that here. We see a little bit of that here. Look at James and John and this, this calling down of fire. Look at verse 54. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. This wasn't a mere cultural difference. Remember that. Understand that. This is not just these people are a little bit different than me, and I don't like being around people that are different than me. These are people that had persecuted the Jews. There are, there are family members that, that are not alive at this point because they had been attacked by Samaritans. They had been terrorized by Samaritans as they were traveling through this area. But Jesus here is, is cautioning them against this. He is rebuking them against this, this idea that they needed to call down fire. Jesus will make the declaration that my kingdom is not of this world. 
And we've seen that in the passages before this, and we'll see in the passages going forward that Jesus is not here trying to establish an earthly kingdom. There is not one political position that the, that the disciples are going to seek to fill and to, and to, and to uh, participate in. They are bringing forward the kingdom of God. It's going to influence people that are working in man's kingdom. It's going to influence people that are here in this worldly kingdom. We're going to see members of the house of Caesar that are Christians, people that are being called out of darkness to light and are going to live and exist differently in those roles. But Jesus isn't here raising up an army. The crusades aren't something that we're called to do, to go and to follow. The crusades are something that were honestly really incredible in how they were practiced it was, it was so bad at one point that as these so-called Western Christians were coming down, you had Eastern Orthodox Christians and Muslims joining together to fight against these Western Christians that were terrorizing these towns, that were destroying things in the name of Jesus. It's not what we're called to do. Ryle makes this point. Ryle is fantastic in the book of Luke, by the way. It says, it is possible to have too much zeal for Christ and yet to exhibit it in the most unholy and unchristian ways. It is possible to mean well and to have good intentions, and yet to make the most grievous mistakes in our actions. It is, it is possible to fancy that we have Scripture on our side and to support our conduct by scriptural quotations and yet commit serious errors. It is clear as daylight from this and other cases related to the Bible, that it is not enough to be zealous and well-meaning. Very grave faults are frequently committed with good intentions. From no quarter, perhaps, has the church received so much injury as from ignorant but well-meaning men. He closes with this. He says, zeal without knowledge is an army without a general and a ship without a rudder. And the sons of thunder, as they were called, these zealous warriors for Christ at this time, ready to raise up, you know, fire from heaven, ready at another point to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus as generals in this, this uh, government that He is going to establish that they believe, um, is inconsistent with what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is working in people's lives from the inside outward. Not mere behavioral modification. True change is that which is going to happen. That which may have taken so many years to become established in a culture and a life and a family and in, in how a person is living, it can change like that. So immediate as it was seen in the life of someone like Nebuchadnezzar, as it is seen in so many conversion stories the Word of God and the Spirit of God is so powerful that that which took many centuries to establish, it can be broken down immediately through the means that God has given, through the proclamation of His Word, that which would be foolishness by any other standard. is our only hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see this cultural cost of discipleship. We also see this earthly cost of discipleship that there can be a, a cost in your comforts. There can be a cost financially. There can be a cost in just being settled, being considered even a, a, a good, upstanding citizen in a culture. 
Let's look at Luke 57 through 58. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's cautioning this man. This man in zeal says, I will follow you wherever you go. And he's warning him, are you ready to be homeless? Are you ready to wander around in merely taking in the hospitality of strangers or maybe in a situation like he is in right now where they have no home? There is no hospitality being shown to them. He's, he's declaring to this man what is happening at this point right now that they are traveling along and they have nowhere to lay their head. They will likely lay down and sleep in the wilderness tonight. They will not be sleeping in a home. They were not given any charity by the Samaritans. They were not shown any hospitality by the Samaritans. They have no place to stay. He has no home to stay in at this time, and that is the cost of following Jesus, and he's warning him here. These comforts you're accustomed to, you may have to give them up. They may be a requirement for you. Comforts, possessions, Wealth, all of these things can be good things. All of these things we are called to use for the glory of God. God has given them to us that we would be a steward of these things. That we're not teaching here just a blind abandonment of possessions. If there was no possessions at all, why would we have an eighth commandment? People are given stewardship over certain things, they're given stewardship over finances, over wealth, over land. Even their influence is something that's given to them by God. But these things, these things must not capture our heart. These things must not become idols. Even good things, good things can become idols. Some of, even, even your marriage in some ways could become an idol if it gets in between you and the Lord. Parenting can become an idol if it's between you and the Lord, if it becomes a place where your heart is so captured that you cannot walk in obedience to Jesus because of the way in which this idol is weighing your heart down. But here we see the ways in which earthly things can do that to us. And I want you to make this connection that I believe that we see very clearly made within the Sermon on the Mount, and that is the connection between the way in which these earthly things capture our heart's attention and our mind's affection, all right, and the way in which anxiety follows, that there is a connection between idolatry of earthly things, worry of these earthly things, and anxiety that follows. And I believe it's laid out in how Matthew is laying out the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it ties very much into what Jesus is saying here to this man, the man that says, I will follow you wherever you go. And he says, are you ready to be homeless? Are you ready to lose these comforts that you're so accustomed to? Matthew six nineteen through 24. Let's consider what it says. Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp to the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but if your eye is bad, 
then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is a warning of earthly things. Even, even money here in this context, treasures here in this context, what is, is money but just the freedom to do things that you want to do at a particular time in the way in which you want to do them? That's what money is. So long as those items are there in the culture and you can, and you can buy them, then that's the freedom that money gives to you. So money is very much tied to this idea of these earthly things. And this isn't an instruction away of removing all wealth and comforts. This isn't to intentionally become poor. It's not teaching here that you need to go and take a, a vow of poverty. We, we need to not go and make ourselves intentionally uncomfortable. It must not be like it. Remember the monk, Simon Stylite. Remember this is the man that he lived on a pole. That man had some issues, but he lived on a pole because he wanted to get away from everyone and the people that he, the, the culture that he lived in believed that this was, this was holy. But look at a passage like this that we see here in, in Matthew or even here in Luke, and they would, they would read this and say, well, see, Jesus is teaching that you need to abandon all possessions. You need to abandon all comforts as though you are a holier person. You are a more sanctified person because you have squandered your wealth. Because you are living out, because you're living even on top of a pole, as bizarre as that is. Had that man survived, people were bringing him food. People were enabling this bizarre behavior, and people came around him. And he became frustrated because so many people were coming around and talking to him. So he made a, a taller pillar. He had someone build a taller pillar for him. So he'd be even higher up and even further away from all these people that were below him. Not what this is teaching. It's not teaching that, that you should in, intentionally inflict pain upon yourself, or intentionally make the life of your family difficult, as though that in and of itself is going to be sanctifying. I remember when we read uh, the, the biography of David Brainerd, there were some that were reading that, and they were looking at how comfortable their lives were. There were some that were trying to make their lives more difficult, intentionally making the lives of their family inconvenient, uncomfortable, and the children are like, well, why are we living like this? Why are we doing this? There's nothing sanctifying, beneficial, and just intentionally inflicting difficulty on yourself. There's nothing beneficial in just getting rid of possessions and throwing them around, wasting them. You're a steward of what the God's given you. You will give an account for what you do. So if you just squander it, you're going to give account for what you do. You're not called to make a vow of poverty. But you must not be attached. Your heart must not be so inclined and attached to these earthly things that the removal of them is going to cause you to lose your religion, is going to cause you to fret and to worry. That is a hindrance to discipleship. That is a hindrance to discipleship. It is a hindrance to the one who is coming to Jesus and will not let go of these worldly idols and will cling to them so hard that he can't cling to the cross desiring even this Messiah he comes to to go and support these idols that he has. You can find this in all kinds of false religions, even those that claim to be Christian. 
You can find the Word of Faith movement that will tell you that God always wants you to be wealthy. God always wants you to be healthy. And you will find the people that teach that, they die. They die. They, they don't live forever, okay? And they die, and they don't take their possessions with them. It's a, it's a hindrance to immediate sanctification. It's also a hindrance to progressive sanctification. There, there is a reality that, that we must see even that which we have and ask us, am I willing to let this go? Is this an idol in my life? Lord, if my position at this job, if I was required to let this go, would I be willing to do it? The wealth that you have, the comforts that you have, would you be willing to let them go in obedience to Christ Jesus? This is something that becomes revealed in the life of Christians and the church during times of persecution. That which you truly love is demonstrated during these times. That which is most important to you is communicated in the choices that you make. Remember, even the rich young ruler, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, keep, keep the commandments. Oh, I've done that. I've done that from, from my birth. Never committed adultery, always always honored my father and mother. No, he didn't. He didn't have a true understanding of what it is to walk in obedience to the law of God. He wasn't listening to Jesus as he was preaching the sermon on the mount. But that when it came to his possessions, Jesus revealed his heart. He was a covetous man. Not that all of you must be required to sell all that you own and give it to the poor in order to follow Jesus, but for this man, that was a hindrance to him. He so loved his worldly possessions. He so loved all of these worldly comforts that he had that he could not release those to come to Jesus, to cling to him. But I want you to see this connection here, this, this comfort that is here. That, that, that there is a freedom from anxiety that is there when you will release these earthly things. Not that you will not still manage them. You hold these things with an open hand were the Lord to take them away, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But look at what we see in Matthew 6, beginning in, in verse 25. We have a therefore at that point. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. You see the connection there. 
the way in which the heart is clinging, the treasures are here on earth. Your hope is in these worldly things, the way in which that will grow and build anxiety in your life the way in which looking at the stock market or the value of your property or whether or not I'm going to get this, get this next job or whether or not I'm going to get this raise or whether or not there's going to be layoffs. There are legitimate concerns to have in each of these areas, certainly. But that's not where our hope is. Our hope is not in our wealth, in our possessions, in our comforts, in our jobs, in our retirement, none of these areas. And we must be willing to lay all of them down for the name of Christ Jesus, for you won't take any of them with you. We must remember this. We must see even these things that God gives to us and use them for His glory. We must see them from an eternal perspective, recognizing that these will not go with us when we die. So long as the Lord has determined that we should have them, use them for His glory But if it would glorify God for me to release these things, to not cling to them, praise be to God for that as well. For the Lord Jesus Christ clothed Himself in flesh and dwelt among us as a man. And He has shown this great hospitality to us. He has shown this great kindness to us. He is that greater manna that came down from heaven, that whoever feeds upon Him will live will never hunger. Whoever drinks from Him will never thirst. Jesus, Jesus will grant to you that that contentment that goes beyond anything this world could ever offer to you, for it is eternal. It is grounded. It doesn't matter what happens in your culture. It doesn't matter what happens in your job or your health. Christ is a firm foundation you must see that, dear friends, that He is a firm foundation for you, and you can trust in Him. If you will release these idols in your, in your heart, if you will release them, if you will see the ways in which you've broken His law, the ways in which you have violated His commandments, the ways in which He's given you these blessings, He's granted them to you, and you've used these blessings He's given to you even to sin against Him even more even as a greater supply of opportunities to sin. So many times in the world we think, well, people just need a little more education. They just need a little more money. We just need to solve this problem or that problem. And there's a great amount of problems that happen because of poverty and because of difficulty and pain that people go through. But merely giving people more education or more money doesn't solve their greatest problem. Our greatest problem is within our hearts. We desire not God. We are self-righteous, and we believe that we are sufficient in and of ourselves, and we want God to conform to us, God to change and support what we desire and support our idols. But God's given to us the only means whereby we can have peace with Him, and it comes in releasing your idols and turning away from them and seeing that you have broken God's law, that you have sinned against Him in grievous ways. But God has given a means whereby you can be saved, whereby your life can actually have purpose. You can actually actually do righteous deeds. You can actually walk in obedience. Your whole life from birth to conversion was nothing but walking in disobedience, nothing but continual sinning. But God made a means. God made a way whereby you can have life, whereby you can be changed. You can have true hope, not within this world, not within the world changing, 
but within your heart changing, turning to Christ, seeing that Jesus has done all that is necessary. Jesus took upon Himself the consequences of sin. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus. There's nothing left to be paid. There's nothing to be paid in purgatory. There's nothing to be paid through your own actions. There's nothing to be paid through your sufferings. If you could have paid for your sins, there was no need for Jesus to dwell amongst us, to clothe Himself in flesh. But Jesus took that upon Himself. That's the passive obedience of Jesus. But we also have the active obedience of Jesus in that Jesus kept the law in every way. He never broke it. And whoever believes upon him will be saved. The wrath of God will not fall upon them. Their sins will be completely forgiven. And they will receive the righteousness of Jesus. They will be clothed in his righteousness. The Bible says Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness. This is righteousness that is imputed. It is placed into your account. You didn't earn this on your own. It was granted to you. Sin is placed upon Jesus, and His righteousness is placed upon you. And in that, you have peace with God, and you gain the blessing of Christ's righteousness, of His perfect obedience to the law of God. And that is granted to you that you will be accepted into the court of heaven you will be accepted in glory. You will exist there in the new Jerusalem. And you will have many blessings that are there that are greater than anything this world could ever give to you. Remember this. Believe this, friends. The poorest man in heaven is wealthier than the richest man on earth. You could have the entirety of the wealth that this earth has. And the poorest man in heaven is of greater, has greater wealth the man who dies in his sins, having the most toys. Please see that, friends. Come to Jesus. Don't let the things of this world captivate your heart. Thirdly, we see the social cost of discipleship, the social cost of discipleship. Let's begin there in verse 59 and go through verse 61. To another, he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another, he said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. A very interesting statement here. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. I do not believe that we need to understand this, that his, his father is deceased and needs to be buried at this time. Um, if that was if that was a reality, then he probably wouldn't be there talking to Jesus at this time. He would have been there as his father was dying, and he would be now burying his father at this time. Because remember, in the first century, when someone died, they did the funeral that day. Now, they would have a funeral that would go on, but the body was going to be buried that day immediately because decomposition happened immediately when someone, when someone dies. That's what happens, and they did not embalm their bodies. They buried them immediately. 
So what he's saying here, at least this, what I believe he's saying here is that once his father had died, he would be there to bury him, and then he would follow Jesus, meaning one of two things. Either he would perform this obligation that he would have to bury his father, which was something that was expected of a son, that he would bury his family member, or that he would be waiting for this inheritance that he would receive from his father, and then go forward and, and follow Jesus. But if he's going to stay here concerned that his father may die at any moment or be there immediately when his father dies to be there to bury him with this anxiety that is there at that point. He's this worry. I've got to be here if he dies. I mean, he's getting older. He's going to die at some point. This is an anxiety that he has, and he needs to fulfill this obligation. Even these good obligations, even these good things that you should do can even become idols. And it looks like that's what it was for this this man, because this concern that he had greatly limited where he could go, where he could live his life, where he had to stay right there in the vicinity of his, his family. And he had these worldly fears packaged in the garments of religion and duty. And he was unwilling to depart from these cultural norms in his service to Jesus. That was his issue here. He saw this as an obligation that he had, which he did have. But he saw it as an obligation that restricted him from leaving this geographical area, not being able to go and to have freedom and to follow God's will in his life. And Jesus says this, he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, saying this, leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. The, the picture that's being given here is this idea that there are people that are going to take care of these things. You don't have to live your life in fear that at any moment your parent's going to die and you have to be there at that exact moment. You can trust God in these areas. You can trust God in this area and a great many other areas. And you have this illustration of the plow that is given there in this, in this passage. And we see that right here. Let's look specifically at that. And uh, we see that we see that beginning there. Um, we see that in in verse sixty one. Another one says, "I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home." Jesus said to him, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." And this seems like a an incredibly and very harsh statement from the Lord at this time, but He's giving him. A caution here, and I don't think it's saying that you can't ever say goodbye to someone or, or, or tell someone what you're doing, but he is, he, is, he is speaking to him in the man's heart of where his heart was, that he was, he was looking back. He was looking back to the old ways and not, not being willing to look forward. And this idea of plowing, we're not a very agrarian society. Some of you are familiar with this, and, and the reality is we have machines that that do these jobs nowadays, but when you're plowing, you need to plow straight. Plowing is something that, um, this illustration is something that the people would have understood because anyone that's plowed using, like, let's say, an animal of some kind and you're, you're plowing into the ground, um, the human is the one that is, is keeping things straight. The human is the one that is keeping that plow into the ground and, and keeping it directed where it needs to go, and the way in which you would plow is by looking forward. You, you can't plow by looking forward, backward. You can't go and say, okay, well, let me see how I'm doing. 
let me see how this, this is going. You can't make an adjustment by looking backward as you're plowing. If you begin to do that, you're going to begin to zigzag, and the furrows that you're making are not going to be straight, and you're going to have your crops all mixed up. You're going to end up damaging a bunch of them. The whole job is going to be really, really inefficient. It's going to damage how you harvest. It's going to damage how you plant. The whole thing is going to be a mess. And so there's a very important job here in plowing that things stay straight, and they stay straight by, by looking forward. The focus that you have of keeping this straight happens not by looking behind you, but by looking in front of you. So the man's heart needed to be, I am going to follow Jesus. And that doesn't mean you're abandoning family. You're abandoning all of your other obligations. It doesn't mean that we're abandoning um, even our possessions. None of that is what's being taught here. But the idea is that I'm looking forward to Christ. My eyes are upon Christ. My focus is upon Christ. In, in that, that's what I need to focus on, seeking first the kingdom of God, seeking first His, his righteousness. Um, that's, that's the key that's being emphasized here. That's the key that's being um, taught here. Linsky makes this point. Um, great commentator, Linsky, Lutheran commentator, but I really appreciate him going through these Gospels. He says this, the man who could not give up his worldly friends completely when he stood in the presence of Jesus and those friends were absent could far less give up those friends when he was again standing in their presence and Jesus was absent. That thing has been tried often enough. The one thing I do, forgetting those little things which are behind and reaching forth into the things which are before, I press forward the mark and the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus. We see this emphasis in the writings of Paul. Paul, who was a man who had such zeal, a man who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a man who had such zeal in the law, such zeal in his own self-righteousness, and he was a man who was awakened. He was made blind so that he could see. He was, he was knocked down, and he was confronted by Jesus. Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? For he's one who persecuted the church, believing he was doing the righteousness of God in doing this. And Paul is one who was awakened by God and given a righteous and a holy zeal that he was not concerned about his worldly possessions. He lost them many times over, though he gained some of them back. And he would sit in prisons and continue to do the work of the Lord in blessing the church. And we have so much of the New Testament that we do because Paul was persecuted. He was put in prison. But man, God had his purpose. The Romans had their intention in putting him in prison, but God had another purpose, and these letters were written. So he is one that we can see that, that had his, mind, his eye on the prize, looking forward to Christ, plowing forward in righteousness. In Philippians 3, beginning in verse 13, we see he says this. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is this necessity, dear Christian, of looking forward, 
of pressing forward, of looking to Christ, trusting in Christ, not, not, not being like the Jews that left Egypt and continued to look backward and pine after what they had in Egypt. Looking back, well, if only we had the cucumbers, if only we had these spices, it, forgetting the slavery that they were under. Do not look back to your Christian. Do not look back to the times when you were an unbeliever and pine after certain aspects of that. See it for what it is. See yourself as one who was a slave. See yourself as one who has been pulled out of that, has been taken out of that. You have been given life in Christ Jesus. You have been given the ability to walk in righteousness. Pine not after these worldly things. Pine out after that which is in the past. Look forward to Christ. Be not like Lot's wife, who was being freed, who was being freed from the judgment that was coming, and she looked back at the idols there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the judgment of God fell upon her. Oh, dear friends, see the importance, the goodness of releasing these worldly things, whether they be cultural earthly or social. For these are things that in, when in obedience to Christ, you may need to turn away from certain things that are cultural in obedience to Christ. You may need to lose certain earthly possessions in obedience to Christ. There may be social consequences even within your family in obedience to Christ. But that which you gain in obedience to Christ is greater than anything you could have gained in disobedience to Christ. Jim Elliott says it best. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He saw this reality. He saw the importance of chasing after Christ, of clinging to Christ, walking in obedience where He has you now. And again, it's not pining after where God might have me here or looking off over here. It's looking where He has you and where He has you now. Where would, we ha- where would He have me walk now? In what way can I walk in obedience to Him here? And humbly clinging to that and cherishing that as a blessing that is given to you by our Lord Jesus Christ. For He has given to you more than this world could ever offer. There's nothing this world has that is not many times more given to you in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that you can lose in this life that will not be granted to you many times over in glory. And dear friends, the key is we must believe that. We must trust in that. We must hold to that. And there, dear friends, is a source of great peace and great comfort.